Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary. And before we get started with today's show, I just want to extend an invitation to you to join me on a pilgrimage to the shrines of Belgium and also to Lourdes. It's a 12-day trip taking place May 29th to June 9th. We'll be visiting the Marian apparition sites in Belgium. We'll visit shrines and cathedrals. We'll visit roadside chapels, and we'll enjoy some Belgian beer. We'll end our trip in Lourdes, experiencing the healing that Lourdes can offer us. Anna Nuzo will be joining us as well, a Catholic musician and artist whose voice you hear every time you tune into the podcast because it's her musical voice that leads us into the show each week. I hope you'll give some consideration to going on this pilgrimage. And if you want to learn more, head on over to Nativity Pilgrimage, and I will put a link in the show notes so that you can readily find the pilgrimage and consider making your down payment today. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Last week, we had the opportunity to hear from Dr. Kevin Clark, and we spoke about Pope Benedict and his Marian theology, his references to Mary and his theological exercises and writings and everything of that sort, but I thought that we could do another episode on Pope Benedict. He's worthy of many episodes, I think, but we'll just do two. And so this is our second installment of How They Love Mary and the Marian devotion of Pope Benedict. And one of the ways that I thought we could really look at Pope Benedict would be that of Our Lady of Fatima. And so I'm speaking with a Fatima scholar today. He actually has been on the podcast, How They Love Mary, before. Uh, He was on episode 16, Making Sense of Marian Apparitions, back in February 28th of 2020, when I was uh, promoting my book, A Lenten Journey with Mother Mary. So he kind of kicked that off. And it also looks like we did an interview April 25th, 2020, about the third secret of Fatima. It was a part of a bonus episode. So I'll link those in the show notes in case you want to go back and listen to what he had to say there. Um, Kevin Simmons has written about private revelation uh, in, in a book in particular that he wrote uh, entitled Refractions of Light, 201 Answers on Apparitions, Visions, and the Catholic Church. But he's also a, a well-known Fatima scholar, having written on the third part of The Secret of Fatima. He's contributed to different Fatima periodicals, Fat- Fatima journals, celebrating the anniversaries, and he even has presented at the Sanctuary of Our Lady of Fatima, which makes him a great person to talk today about Pope Benedict and Fatima. So thanks so much, Kevin, for joining me. Hey, Father. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. And now, it's my understanding when it comes to Fatima, and especially your specialty is the third secret of Fatima, or on the third part of the secret. And Pope Benedict, I believe, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, kind of wrote a theological breakdown of the third part of the secret. Am I wrong in that, or is that true? 
He wrote a theological commentary that was published on June 26, 2000. It was part of the larger work of a little booklet known as The Message of Fatima. That was the official book that published the third, uh, the, the text of the third part of The Secret of Fatima. Now, I think one of the things we have to do is maybe just sometimes when I come into an interview, I already know what we're talking about, but I have to realize that people listening, they might be like, what is the third secret of Fatima and why is this important? So uh, can you just kind of lay a, a simple groundwork of what exactly the third secret of Fatima or the third part of the secret is? Sure. In July of 13th of 1917, the Virgin Mary had appeared for the third time in Fatima, Portugal, a little town, a little village there, somewhere it's a hamlet, I guess, uh, in Portugal, about an hour and a half, two hours north of Lisbon. Uh, again, this was 1917 we're talking about. And Our Lady communicated what was known as a secret to the children. And the, the secret had three parts. The first part was a vision of hell. The second part was the revelation of the devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary that God wished to give to us. And the third part was remained kind of hidden for a while because it was written down in 1944, early January of 1944, but it wasn't published until the year 2000. And a lot of hype and mystique had surrounded it because, if nothing else, if it foretold, you know, peace, love, and rainbows, you know, why not publish it, right? But a lot of people thought that it must have been very bad because it wasn't published so it was first it was in it was in portugal and then in 1957 it went to rome and the popes decided not to publish it again until the year 2000 but when it was published it depicts uh christians from all walks of life and vocations that is um going towards a cross upon a a steep hill or a steep mountain and along the way, they're being shot and killed. There's um, the Pope is there. To, the Pope is there. Bishops, cardinals, lay people, men and women, religious. Um, and at the and like at the top or above this scene, Our Lady is there uh, with her immaculate heart, and there's an angel with a flaming sword. And the only words to the vision are penance, 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 and that comes from the angel. But there was a light that radiated from our lady, from our from our lady, and she she held back those flames. So that's the that's the. Oh, and there's also a half ruined city. That 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 the Pope they say travels through in order to to get to the cross. So this kind of leads to the question of well, what does this mean? The pic the the vision was a description. Uh, the text that was published was only a description of what. The three children had seen but there was no interpretation you know what does what does all of this mean you know so there's been a lot of debates and arguments and uh much ink has been spilled uh arguing the interpretation of it in fact um the church has her interpretation of it as best as she has as best as she knows at, at knew at that time um and other people have alternative interpretations but that is essentially what the the text itself is now it is a separate question what's the interpretation of course the church has hers as I, as I said a minute ago and that basic interpretation is that this is a prediction of the suffering of the church in the 20th century 
people were being martyred because of the spread of Marxist thought. Um, and Our Lady had asked in the second part of the secret that Russia be consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. So without that consecration, Russia, Our Lady said, would spread her errors throughout the world, provoking wars and persecutions and all other horrible things, like the, like the Pope having much to suffer, um, you know, uh, various nations would be annihilated, you know, a couple of other things. So as the consecration was not done in time, uh, between 1929 and 1930, roughly, when, when heaven requested it, Russia did, in fact, spread those errors. And I, I like to call this the, uh, the, the, the back to the future uh, rule. If you remember, the, um, I should probably ask Father, have you seen the movie back to, movies Back to the Future? Yes, yes, of course. Okay, I know really. What, self, what self-respecting American nowadays hasn't seen? <laughs> um, but uh, you remember in the second movie when old Biff goes back and changes the past? Uh, yes. And um, Marty and Doc go back to the past thinking that it's the, uh, that it's the, the their 1985, but in fact it's not. And Doc Brown called it the alternate 1985, right? Yes, yep. Uh, it's kind of like that. History had a path. It had a fork in the road. If this, then that. If that, then this. Well, humanity chose the wrong path. It went down the path of allowing those errors, Marxist atheism and ideology, to spread throughout the world. And we are still dealing with those errors now, uh, the effects of them in one way, shape, or form. Um, but ultimately, the consecration was done in 1984, March 25th of that year. And Sister Lucia, who was by that point the last surviving visionary, um, she had said that, or otherwise indicated that a, a consecration avoided a nuclear war that would have wiped out a portion of humanity. So um, there's been a lot of debates upon the question of the consecration, which is another subject unto itself. Um, and I'm not as equipped to discuss that one as I as that subject as I am the third part of the secret, uh, I would say. But the third part of the secret, basic as I understand it, and as I advance this thesis, I believe that it is in many ways, in respects, a visualization of what Our Lady said in the second part of the secret, because the second part was only words. But the third part dovetails very well with those words of Our Lady in the second part of the secret. Um, so the church, I think in her great wisdom, saw that, saw those connections, and brought that out in her interpretation between both what was in the written text as well as the presentation at the press conference in the year 2000. So that's basically a broad scope of the, what the third part of the secret is. There's all kinds of particulars we can get into, of course, but for, that's a broad overview of, of, of the subject. And what do you think were some of his major insights into that third part of the secret? Uh, as you see it, as a person that has really studied it and uh, has read and written a lot about it. Well, let me just pull books here off my shelf here real quick. <laughs> Um, I own both the English and the Italian uh, versions. So, well, some of the beautiful things that uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, 
then prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, had talked about was he first he contextualized the Fatima within the overall theological topic of private revelation. He talked about the nature of private revelation, its theological status in the church, and those sorts of things. And then he moved to discuss Fatima more specifically within that context, and of course, especially the third part of the secret. And he was very good at, at his job, very good at what he did, and he was very precise in coming to talk in, in talking about at least the broad uh, lineamenti or the broad terms that we can understand the third part of the secret, because the text wasn't published with a commentary or an interpretation, I should say rather, from Lucia, the visionary of Fatima, the one of the three anyway. Uh, she passed away in 2005, so she was still living when the document was published. And Ratzinger did a very good job in laying out the theological principles in order to understand these things, uh, both you know within Fatima but also within the larger theological context. Some things he was not really too well understood on, but other points kind of came out later on and opportunities arose for us to clarify things that he had said. Uh, we might talk about some of those particulars today. But overall, the beauty that he did was to combine the tradition, especially with the anthropological structure of private revelation. So how is it that God interacts within the human soul? These were very subtle points, and a lot of people missed what Ratzinger had said on that point, and I talked about this in my book uh, on the third part of The Secret of Fatima, but he correctly identified the type of vision that was had at Fatima, which um, was the imaginativa, uh, or we would commonly say in English like imaginative, uh, but some people think that... It, 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 because of the word is so close in English to imagination, everybody thinks so much. You know, people just making it up. That was one of the things that people misunderstood. But when you go back and you read what he said, and you look up his theological influences, so for instance, in this case, especially Augustine, because that was Ratzinger's first dissertation was on Rat was on um, Saint Augustine's City of God, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Um, you read Augustine was the first person in the church's history to delineate the the three levels or the three types of visions. I know that there was like the um, the epistle of what was it Diogenes I think from the second third century where a lot of some of these mystical stuff theology starts to be becoming to be developed, but it was Saint Augustine who really kind of formulated it, and I believe he influenced Ratzinger in regard. But the, the tradition after Augustine in mystical theology took over and developed it even further after him, maybe more than a little bit later. Um, but when, he, when Ratzinger gives us these broad interpretations of what, we were, of what, what the third part of the secret was all about, uh, it gives us some tools to help us go deeper even. And these are meant for reflections. And in addition to the book, they were, uh, it was a whole press conference, but they were, uh, the second half of which was questions and answers from the assembled journalists. And a lot of people did not have access to that information that was said during the Q&A until my book was published in May of 2017, because I was able to 
um, obtain a copy of the of a video copy of the proceedings with the audio, and I was able to get it transcribed from the Italian and then translated into English, which is which is now an appendix item in the book. Um, and there were from golden statements that Ratzinger had said during that Q and A, and. Now that we have the text of that transcript, because it was it was never or that the proceedings it was never released by the Vatican. Now that we actually have that, um, it, it is it is an invaluable research tool for researchers, and it really does start to describe or it kind of it really does show more of the depth of Ratzinger's thinking, in my humble opinion, because he was so very subtle. He made his points, but he didn't constantly footnote people into oblivion. You know. He was so imbued with the tradition. He knew things forwards and backwards that it was just such an intimate part of him. He could say things and not even have to provide a precise citation in a way because it was just such a part of him. So a story that I've heard uh, was supposedly one day when he was, I think, defending his, I think, the second dissertation, I want to say, or one of his dissertations, he was the story that I had read somewhere was that he was asked about a reference, I think, in Aquinas, and he he didn't. Admittedly, Ratzinger was not the biggest person on Aquinas, but uh, people were very impressed when he looked at them and said, "Oh yes, uh, Aquinas talks about that in three different places. Which one? To which one do you refer?" You know, uh, I always just kind of loved that story because it really brings out how much of a towering giant and an intellect that Ratzinger, you know, was. And I hate using past tense, you know, because I've been reading Ratzinger since 2002, three years before he was elected Pope. And so, you know, it's just, it's hard even, you know, to say, you know, you have to use the past tense now, but um, he just knew every, he knew everything forwards and backwards it was ju- it was just a thing of beauty, and you see that reflected in here. But you have to you you can't just take it at face value. With Ratzinger, you have to really think. With John Paul II, he was much more philosophical, and he would just kind of go around and around and around before finally getting to a point. Um, Ratzinger is a bit different. I think, in my humble opinion, he's much more rich. He's richer in, in, in that content. And a single sentence could have about a thousand books behind it or a thousand different human thoughts behind it. That's one of the beauties of Ratzinger. And we see that reflected in his theological commentary. Um, so while it makes for, the, for great theological stuff and, and for research and to study, unfortunately, it doesn't lend itself very well to some of the controversies that we saw arise with respect to Fatima um, after with and things with uh, involving the third part of the secret. Uh, we may we might get to that. I'm not sure. It just kind of depends upon uh, the you know things you want to talk about, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I appreciate to, to so to having said that background to answer the question succinctly. The theological depth of what he proposed was nothing short of breathtaking, but it takes a sharp mind and a willing mind, I should probably say, a willing mind and an eager heart to really mine the depths of it. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about his theological commentary.
So then, when this secret is published in 2000, that's when Cardinal Ratzinger, as the prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, he mm -hmm. releases his own interpretation, or I, I forget the exact word that you used uh, to describe it, but then what does he say then? What, what, what are some of the key points? Uh, you said that these principles, uh, that they advance you know, the theology of Fatima and also put it within a theological context, a greater theological context. So what are some of the highlights of the commentary of Pope Benedict? All right. Well, I got the book open right here. Maybe you hear the pages turning in the background, but um, he begins with a very quick introduction, um, and then he then the then it's divided into sections. The first section being public revelation and private revelations, their theological status, and the basic point that he makes here is public revelation is the revelation of God in human history and fulfilled or perfected in jesus christ and the in the in, in the new testament so going all the way back from the old testament you know genesis to roughly about the death of the last at the death of the last apostle that period known as divine revelation where god was was disclosing himself to mankind um and private revelation is about orienting people towards that public revelation it's not a new revelation god's not renewed god is not showing us new things um it is private revelation is more about re helping man or reminding men about the, what revelation is and its importance and sometimes going deeper into that message already given to help people understand the depths of it instead of maybe just like a surface level thing uh, understanding of it so, for instance, um, in the 1600s, you had the Sacred Heart Revelations to Margaret Mary Alacoque. Well, um, we already knew about the Sacred Heart. It's all over the New Testament. You know, Jesus loved people. Jesus wept. The lance pierced out blessed the Lord's side. Um, blood and water came out. We knew about that stuff, but those are the physical components of it. But what's the deeper significance here? You know, what does the Sacred Heart symbolize? What does it? What is? What is it? You know. Well, those revelations went a little deeper into that. And um, Ratzinger kind of points out these, this broad perspective of what private and public revelation is and their relationship with one another. But one of the key points that he makes in this first section is about how uh, private revelation is about helping people go deeper into the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Um and anything he says that takes us away from that uh, is not of God. So that's basically one of the chief criteria, criteria that the church gives us. If it's leading us towards God and his revelation, it could very well be true. But if it's leading us away from him, then that's a bad thing. So, for instance, uh, Father Looney, if you claim to me or anybody else that Jesus told you that you were to walk away from the church, commit apostasy. I would be inclined to think that's not from God <laughs> because it would be violating what we know from God's revelation. It may seem very a very simple point, but it's actually one of the more profound ones because when he was when Pope Benedict became Pope Ratzinger became Pope Benedict, he actually uh, brought up one of these points from Saint. He quotes Saint John of the Cross. 
uh, in giving us his son, his only word, for he possesses no other. Uh, he spoke everything to us at once in this sole word, and he has no more to say, because what he spoke before to the prophets in part, uh, in parts, he has now spoken all at once by giving us the all who is his son. Any person questioning God or desiring some vision or revelation would be guilty not only of foolish behavior, but also of offending him by not fixing his eyes entirely upon Christ and by living with the desire from, for some other novelty. And that's St. John of the Cross, the Santa Mount Carmel. Uh, he quotes something similar, if not the same passage, later on in his, I think it was a post-nautal apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, I think it was around 2010 to 2012, somewhere maybe in through there, maybe. Um, and so these are points that we see coming up consistently in Ratzinger's thought then. Um, so that's that for, uh, section, in essence. Then he gets into the anthropological structure of private revelations. And this was something that came up when he was Pope. He, pope Benedict went to Fatima in May of 2010, and he also talked about this. And the point that he makes here is, what is what does this look like when the supernatural, in this case God, you know, what does that look like when God is touching the soul in this way, this very particular way? What is this kind of a, this meshing? Or if you think of like two circles, almost like a Venn diagram, what does the meshing, the coming together of these two circles look like? What's that center point you know, where the two colors come together, as it were? What, what's, the, what's happening there? What, what's the drama? And Ratzinger points out that there's a lot of subjectivity there. Because the scholastics had that famous axiom about um, people, uh, the thing that is received is received in accordance with the mode of the receiver. Uh, shorthandedly known in Latin as quid quid recipitor. Um, and so in other words, we can talk and I may intend something and I may have a lot behind me when I'm talking, but if somebody doesn't have that background, they may not know what I'm talking about. So they're not going to be as open or as maybe as willing or as understanding of what I say, which could lead to things like boredom. Uh, or some people may think that you're being rude or condescending. You know, um, People interpret according to the best lights that are given to them. And that's essentially what Ratzinger, uh, one of the highlights that he was saying in his theological commentary, uh, and he, so he says that how we have to have an interior vigilance because of this subjectivity that's very much present. There's a lot of room for error, and so we have to keep that in mind. Now, he doesn't say that the children of Fatima were lying or given over to, you know, to, to fabrications and stuff like that. No. Uh, some, unfortunately, misinterpreted him that way uh, from some of the comments that he makes, but when, but what the position that I argue is, if you look at it from the tradition and that larger mystical theological tradition, um, it, what he's saying becomes a lot more intelligible, especially with that uh, Augustine. Um, and he even says, interior vision is not fantasy, uh, uh, but as we have said, a true and valid means of verification. So, uh, so he's clearly upholding that the children saw something that was authentic. Then the next section is an attempt to interpret the secret of Fatima, and this is where now he's getting more into those broader interpretations. So the, we have the imagery in the third part about the Immaculate Heart. Well, what does that mean? 
But Rathnicker takes it right back to the Bible. He says, in biblical language, on page 39, he says, in biblical language, the heart indicates the center of human life, the point where reason, will, temperament, and sensitivity converge, where the person finds his unity and his interior orientation. Uh, according to Matthew 5, 8, the Immaculate Heart is a heart which, with God's grace, has come to perfect interior unity and therefore sees God. To be devoted to the Immaculate Heart of Mary means, therefore, to embrace this attitude of heart, uh, which makes the fiat, your will be done, the defining center of one's whole life. So you see, first he, first he presents the anthropological structure. What is the human heart? He's looking at it from like a philosophy of the human person. Then he takes it to, to the scriptures. What does it mean to have an immaculate heart? Well, Jesus said, yeah, blessed are the pure heart, but they shall see God. Um, so that's so an immaculate heart is a pure heart. Uh, some people got upset because in that section in page 39, he used it that Ratzinger had a lowercase i and h. Um, and so... Uh, I, I don't, and they got upset because they thought that he was somehow trying to offend Our Lady. And that's not what he was driving at. No, he used a generic point about purity of heart, but using immaculate heart because we're talking about Our Lady in a way, but kind of, it's kind of like a subtle play on words. But then he says in the next sentence, to be devoted to the immaculate, to the immaculate heart of Mary means therefore to embrace his attitude of heart. So he's trying to say that we too strive after our Lady's example, she who has the immac an immaculate heart. We strive to be that way, but we don't have quite her heart. So you have to kind of do lowercase i, lowercase h to indicate that fact. But then right in the very next sentence, he's talking about Our Lady's immaculate heart with capital, with capital I, uh, I and H. So uh, I, just, I don't see the... Uh, that particular objection that I, that has um, been having a lot of merit. I think it's quite frankly, I think it's a bit bunk. Um, and I, and again, it's more about polemics at that point as opposed to that deep, rich theology that Ratzinger is presenting here. Um, so then he comes to the third part of the secret of bottom specifically, and actually Ratzinger, this is actually one of the things that I I, I do kind of advance. Uh, Ratzinger actually got fooled, believe it or not. Um, I'm, I'm presently working on the second edition of my book, and I'm, I'm kind of highlighting this a little bit more in the revised chapter 13 of the book. But Ratzinger got a little duped here. Here's how he got a little duped. He said that Sister Lucy, the, when they were looking to publish the text, uh, Cardinal Bettoni went to Sister Lucia in April of 2000 to talk to her about everything. And Bertoni went back to Rome and reported what Lucia had told him. Based, it looks from what I can tell, based upon Bertone's report, Ratzinger says here uh, that Lucia uh, had pointed out that she had received the vision, but not its interpretation. The interpretation, she said, belonged not to the visionary, but to the church. Mm. But when you go back and you look at what Bertone actually said, and for this I have to go back to the original Italian, because the English edition, um, it, it, I mean, it, it's generally okay, but I think the, the 
the uh, Italian brings it out a little bit better. Um, I'm trying. I just got a Bertone in uh, in recounting her words, Sister Lucia's words. The literal words that, as reported by Bertone, say something a little bit different, and that's the point that I'm driving at is that there's something a little bit different. So we see that, notice these very, very fine words. I wrote that which I had seen. The interpretation is not up to me, but to the Pope. Does that sound the same thing as she never received an interpretation? Uh, no. Exactly. A lot of people missed that very subtle nuance. Ratzinger apparently was appeared to be one of them because he says, Sister Lucia responded by pointing out that she had received the vision, but not its interpretation. The interpretation, she said, belonged to the visionary, but not to the visionary, but to the church. So the second part of that sentence, he's correct. But he seems to have kind of expanded upon that by saying that she received the vision, but not its interpretation. That's not entirely accurate to the literal words of Bertone, as far as what he reported. She just simply said she wrote what I saw, but the interpretation up to me. That's for all y'all. That's all, all for y'all over there in Rome to figure out, right? That's what she said. That's a little different. Why is this a big deal? Because in June, uh, October 2013, a new book was published, uh, Un Camino Sobre Oya de Maria, the, A Pathway into the Gaze of Mary. It was written by Sister Lucia's uh, fellow Carmelite sisters there in the convent of Coimbra in Portugal. And they revealed that there was, in fact, an interpretation. But Our Lady had commanded Sister Lucia not to write it down. Um, and so there's been a lot of debate about that ever since that revelation has come to light. Um, and there are some finer points that we don't need to get into at the moment. But um, to make a long story short, to tie this back to what with the original point, Ratzinger appears to have been duped by a very by a very humble Carmelite nun in Coimbra, Portugal. So it just kind of goes to show you that you know, um, you know, Ratzinger is beautiful as a towering intellect as he was. You know, there's some humility there. You know, so this is a point that I bring out in my writings to say that. You know, uh, this was a point where uh, we, we, it requires deeper study, basically. It requires deeper study. But for, by present day, to 2023, uh, da available data, it looks as though Ratzinger may have been mistaken there. No, no, I mean, it's not the biggest deal in the world, I wouldn't say. I mean, he, it's not like, a, it's not like a, a grievous error or anything, because he didn't know. That there wasn't that there was in fact something else. He didn't know that. Uh, Sister Lucy was keeping things under wraps because Our Lady had told her, "Don't tell anybody about it. You know, don't reveal that there is um, that they that you know." Our Lady's words were, "Write what they command you, but not that which is given to you to understand of its meaning." And the Portuguese word for meaning is significado. So we didn't know this at the time. In the, in the year 2000, when this book was being composed, so we we can see we can look back on things now with the benefit of hindsight. But 
it is a talking point, and I think it's worthy of further study. And I talk about this about this a bit more in the second upcoming second edition of my book. Um, so Ratzinger starts talking more about the individual images, what they mean in this section, um, and one of the major points. This is actually that shows the depths of his thought. Was when he talks about uh, on page forty-two. The concluding part of The Secret uses images which Lucia may have seen in devotional books and which draw their inspiration from long-standing intuitions of faith. There are some folks who said that he just accused Lucia of making it all up, that she just fabricated. She saw something in a book and just told everybody, that's what I saw. No. This, this is that point about the theological depth of Ratzinger. Uh, he was coming from a very finer point of what the kind of visions are that we're dealing with at Fatima. Remember, we talked earlier about Augustine and the three delineations of, of visions. One of those visions is the imaginativa, or the imaginative vision. And in that kind of vision, God, uh, and I, I like Aquinas's way of describing it, so that's why I use him to describe it, but God can divinely coordinate Vinitus uh, ordinantor, I think was the Latin. Um, God can divinely coordinate existing images in the mind of man in order to tell them something. And the best analogy, I think, that most people will get to understand this is, uh, let me put this, Father Looney, have you ever played Scrabble? Of course. Okay. So you have all these letters that you have on the little tile or the tilting at the wooden slat, slat in front of you, and you can rearrange them and spell different words, right? Yes, correct. Okay. So why can't God do that with images in a man's mind? God can do anything that, God wishes. <laughs> that's the point at stake here with this type of vision, imaginativa. And God, like the Scrabble tiles, can take existing images in a person's mind and so organize them or inspire someone to think in certain ways that the message is clear or a message is clear. Um, so, like, if you take the letters T-A-B, that spells tab. Rearrange them, bat. Rearrange them still. You have the abbreviation for about. So, but it comes down to the intention of the mind of the person, and God can take those things in somebody's mind and arrange them so that it's intelligible. And actually, Ratzinger did not talk about this. He didn't footnote anything, but when you go back to Lucia's own writings, she, does, uh, she did actually learn about hell. And from her mother's catechism, and Lucia did understand a little bit about hell through her mother's catechism. Lucia at the time couldn't read, but she could see the pictures. This is actually in the memoirs of Sister Lucia, some of her writings. So it's a shame. I wish Ratzinger had footnoted that because it would have explained an awful lot. You know, uh, it would have been a very direct reference, uh, or at least a fairly direct reference to, to more of that depth of thought. Um, and that I think is one of the best aspects of this. So in fact, the point that was very much contested by some people ends up being one of the shining gems 
of Ratzinger's thought on this is, be- and that's be- precisely because he is so good and so knowledgeable with the tradition, he can just weave it through. He could just thread it through like it was nothing. And people who are trained in theology can see this depth, but also people who are not necessarily trained in the theology, they can still see this if they have a good, if they have a good mind and they, um, uh, this meaning the theological commentary overall. They can still they can appreciate it and say, you know what, I kind of get the sense that there's something else going on here, you know. Um, if you look at it with a polemical lens, you're looking at it wrong. You know, or as the expression goes, you're doing it wrong. Um, and it's very unfortunate because you know I have had to deal with a lot of those some, with a lot of those polemics over the years with these subjects, and it's very unfortunate because people are missing the forest for the you know mistaking the forest for the trees here. You know they're 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 missing the boat. It's like there's such a profound thought here, you know. Uh, you got to kind of look up with the scholarship here because if you don't, you're going to fall behind. <coughs> Sadly, I think that's already been the case uh, in various places and/or persons. But um, nevertheless, it's never too late. So I encourage people. You know, if Ratzinger, I think in many respects had it right with Fatima. And it shows that beautiful depth of his mind. And as somebody who has been reading Ratzinger for going on now 21 years, off and on, I mean, uh, it's, it's, I mean, there's just such a depth there. And uh, sincere seeking minds, I think, could really appreciate what he was doing with his theological commentary. It doesn't mean that, you know, I think he was right in every jot and tittle, as like what I said a few moments ago about that one example. But he expressed things very well um, with simplicity, but a deep, deep, profound background to it. And that's where a lot of the drama is, you know. Not the controversies, the drama is really di- di- diving more, uh, more deep into, or you know, deeply into the mind of Ratzinger on this, because you start to see much more of those beautiful, beautiful influences from the tradition. Now, Pope Benedict went to Fatima in 2010. What was the purpose of his visit, and what did he say of importance while he was there? He went there uh, in part because it was the 10th anniversary of the beatification of Lucia's cousins, uh, now saints uh, Francisco and Jacinta Marto. Um, And he wanted to be there as a pilgrim as well, because he also, I think, had a devotion. He was very devoted to Our Lady. But I also think that that there was something there, especially with, um, with... the Immaculate Heart, uh, with Our Lady and, and Fatima, too, more specifically with that singer. But um, I suppose more on that will come out as as more people write about him as uh, now that he is no longer with us. Um, and so he gave many addresses during this trip. It wasn't just during uh, the Fatima one. There were many different addresses that he gave throughout the whole, I think, three, maybe four days, I think it was. Um, and I remember when he went there, uh, I was in South Carolina at the time and I was, I remember writing about it and things of that sort. 
He is unfortunately uh, known for making two very controversial statements. The first one was on the plane going to Portugal. He was asked a question about does the third part of the secret have any relevance for us today, meaning 2010. And he, he made comments to the effect of how we can still see some meaning in the third part. Well, that seemed to contradict what they were saying 10 years prior. They were saying that the prophecies of Fatima were fulfilled. There's nothing else on that score, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And I went back and I looked at this and I said, I think you kind of missed the boat. Um, you you kind of missed what Benedict was talking about here. He wasn't saying, he wasn't opening back up that door. He never said that, he never repudiated the position about the, pro the specific prophecies of Fatima uh, have been fulfilled, so there's nothing else. He never repudiated that. Instead, what he was doing was talking about the prophetic the, the, uh, he was kind of more or less speaking toward the broader understanding of what prophecy is and saying that the church suffers in every age. The church militant always suffers. And there's always persecutions. There's always somebody doing something, you know, bad things happening to the Pope, he says. He says, so when we look on the third part of the secret now in 2010, we can still see some meaning in that. So meaning like, for instance, um, you know, God is still with his people. God is still helping his people. So we're getting a private, if, if I may use that word here, we're getting some comfort and consolation, which is the very nature of prophecy. Prophecy, authentic prophecy is meant to give hope to people. So the prophecy of Fatima, in the third part of the secret especially, we look back on it and we can see God's providence, God protecting his church. And we can draw comfort in that even in later years or uh, decades or centuries of the church. Even if the specific prophecies that were given at the time in 1917 have already been fulfilled. So, for instance, Our Lady predicted uh, the beginning of World War II. She said the war, the war will end, uh, but if mankind does not stop offending God, another and worse war will break out during the pontificate of Pius XI. Though that's a very spe very specific prophecy, especially when this is 1917, Pope Benedict XV was on the throne of St. Peter at the time. Pius XI wasn't elected Pope for another five years. So Our Lady, not only did she predict the name of the Pope that would come after Benedict the Fifteenth, she also said what would happen during his pontificate. World War II. Uh, so those are very, and of course, that happened in 1938, 1939. So uh, that's what was meant by that, that the specific prophecies of Fatima uh, have been fulfilled, but we can still draw meaning and, and consolation out of it. That's more or less what he was driving at with that. And then the second comment that he made was during the homily in Fatima on May 13th, 2010. He said, we, he said, we will be mistaken to think that Fatima's prophetic mission is complete. Well, that just threw a lot of people into a tailspin because they said, see, see, he proves it. 
you know, the third secret is still open. See, you know, blah, all the other stuff. It, it didn't just pertain to the 20th century. Benedict walked back what he said in his commentary 10 years ago. And again, I looked at the issues and I said, I think you all have lost the plot on this. First of all, the literal words that he said were, we would be mistaken to think that Fatima's prophetic mission is complete. A prophetic mission versus prophecy are two different things. But you have to have that trained theological ear to know the difference. And Ratzinger talked about the nature of prophecy in his theological commentary. He said, what is prophecy? It is the communication or, or the, re the revealing of the will of God in the present. God revealing his will to his, you know, especially to his people in the present. That's the overall broad nature of prophecy. Now, all of us have a prophetic role. All the baptized share in Christ's threefold mission of priest, prophet, and king. So we are all prophets, all of us. And when you read Benedict in that way, in the, hom in the and especially in the context of the entire homily, it all comes together and makes perfect sense. Also, when you read what Benedict said to the Portuguese bishops, uh, I want to say that it was in Lisbon, but I'm not sure. The, the address is on the Vatican's website. He talked about that prophetic character. He says, you have a prophetic character. You know, well, he wasn't calling them all prophets that they're seeing, you know, you know, speaking in tongues and raising the dead and, you know, uh, extraordinary manifestations, you know, or extraordinary manifestations of the charismata, um, the you know, the extraordinary charisms of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't necessarily talking about that, although that is a part of the tradition. What he was talking about was that 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 that, that munus of prophets that we are all in Christ as members of the, as baptized members of, of, of the mystical body. That's what he was driving at. But again, uh, some of the more sensational news that was spread was really kind of drowned out that again, that beautiful, profound theological mind of Ratzinger, they drowned that out. And it was very unfortunate because they uh, that argument or the, that interpretation missed what he was really driving at. Incredibly unfortunate, because the whole character of his apostolic voyage to Portugal was deeply marked by his thinking and that profound thought. In this case, in the specific example of the nature of prophecy. And how we are all called to be prophets in a world that has been forgetting and neglecting and dare I even say rejecting God. So he was calling us to to uh, that baptismal office of being prophets to witness to God. It was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, it just unfortunately got caught up in all of that uh, needless controversy. Uh, but when you go back and you read what he said, and you read them in the light of uh, all of the interpretive lines that I just said, 
it makes much more sense and that that profound depth of his theological thinking starts to become more apparent to the average person. Uh, and the way that he ends uh, that homily that you're referencing, he says, May the seven years which separate us from the centenary of the apparitions hasten the fulfillment of the prophecy of the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary to the glory of the Most Holy Trinity. So even the prophetic element of, in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. And I think it's a marvel here. You know, Pope Benedict dies in the year of our Lord 2022, right at the end of the year. So that means he saw the centenary of the apparition. Uh, He lived through it as this quiet, Pope Emeritus living in a little uh, monastery niche of the Vatican and uh, living his life out in prayer for the conversion of sinners and such. So he sees the centenary. Pope Francis then consecrates the world and especially Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart. And it's my understanding that Pope Benedict was you know, collegially uh, involved in that uh, consecration. So he he was still active in Fatima, even after his pontificate, because of his abdication, he's still a part of it. And I think, too, just one thing to mention about his visit to Fatima is that I find it quite beautiful that he offered an act of entrustment and consecration of priests to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So this is, I, I believe, right on the heels or within the year of the priest, maybe. Uh, otherwise, I don't know why he would do this, but he does this. But he has beautiful lines in here. You know, may the church be thus renewed by priests who are holy, priests transfigured by the grace of him who makes all things new. Help us through your powerful intercession, never to fall short of this sublime vocation, nor to give way to our selfishness, to the allurement of the world, and to the wiles of the evil one. Mother of the church, we priests want to be pastors who do not feed themselves, but rather give themselves to God for their brethren, finding their happiness in this. So it goes on. It's it's a very long prayer that Pope Benedict crafted. But, you know, we talk about consecration in relationship to Fatima. And, and, you know, not only do we consecrate the world and everything to the Immaculate Heart, but here he is offering priests to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and trusting them uh, to her care and maternal solicitude. Yes. Uh, the year for priests was 2009 to 2010. So we are we're squarely in that time frame with Benedict being in Fatima. So it makes perfect sense. But it also makes perfect sense because there is a lot, even in the message of Fatima, about priests. Uh, it's a working, developing aspect of the message of Fatima and going deeper into that. So I don't want to burden people too much by going into some of the deep, deep, deep diving particulars. But when you go and you look at what Sister Lucia said in her memoirs, we have these interesting notions about how the children were very avid about praying for priests all the way back, 1917-1920. And so there's a very, very deep connection there, and I believe it's connected to the, to the prophecies of, of Fatima. And um, <laughs> even at one point, when uh, the future Pope John Paul I went as Cardinal Luciani to meet with Sister Lucy in the Carmel of Coimbra, there, there was, uh, they met for a while and they talked and 
there was a basic summary drawn up of what they talked about, and he signed it and she signed it, and we have that document. It is published to to to, uh, to this day, and uh, I think actually it was Luciani himself who published it uh, shortly after. I think it was August. I think they met in July of seventy seven seventy eight, and uh, he published it in the diocesan publication. I think it was only weeks later or something like that. But uh, the the um, I'm trying to remember the Italian text that was presented in the book Lutum of Gentilissima by Bertone. Uh, it had it one way. Uh, okay, it's on, I got to look up page sixty-six here real quick. Um, yeah, they were talking about it. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> here it is on page 70 of the first edition. Um, Con tanta energia e condizione mal ha parlato de freres, padres e cristaus a firme cabeza. <laughs> and what that means is, um, with, like, with much energy and, con- and uh, conviction, she, she spoke about uh friars priests padres or priests and christians uh uh with a firm head a firm cabeza or as we would simply say in english they need to have their heads they need to have their heads screwed on straight <laughs> i always get a kick out of that because it, it just it just shows the humanity of sister lucia uh and they actually get, he actually and, and um, luciani gives the actual portuguese words that she said so you, you, in English, the colloquialism that we would roughly translate that as is, you know, the, the, the priests, the, these friars, you know, they all need to have their heads on. They, do, they all need to have their heads on straight. Um, and she said that in the 70s, when the church was going through a very, very deeply tumultuous time, you had people committing apostasy of orders and apostasy of vows and people leaving en masse the priesthood or religious life. I mean, even Pope Paul VI talked about this publicly. Um so I'm not saying anything that's controversial. It's public, not it's public record. Um, and so all of this gets bound up, I think, within the message of Fatima, because here you have all these people that were being martyred in the third part of the secret, among them priests and you know clerics, popes, bishops, cardinals. You know they're all being martyred, mm. uh, and so they need our prayers. But some of them also, I think, get martyred. Uh, well, maybe not martyred, but some, you know, if they have committed errors, um, and you know, they they don't they're not living the priesthood, living out their priestly vows, shall we say, and living the living an authentic priesthood. You know, they need our prayers too. And I, I think that, that that is a component of something Sister Lucy was getting into. So I give that to your readers, to your, or to your listeners. To, to think about a little bit, because I think that's one area of Fatima studies that's a bit underappreciated, and, and it's uh, virgin territory, if I may say so. It's unexplored, uncharted waters, you know, but I think a lot of work could be done in that area. Well, very good, Kevin. This has been a very thorough conversation about Fatima from the perspective of Cardinal Ratzinger, then turned Pope Benedict. And I think we've really come to appreciate the fact that 
he's given this commentary on the third part of the secret. We can really extrapolate some key points there. We can come to understand it a bit more. And uh, I think you've helped us to do just that. So I think that we've done the memory of Pope Benedict quite good uh, as we have conversed here today. I think so too. You know, I, 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 I miss him terribly. I do. And, um, you know, Maybe we could say a, uh, a quick prayer for the repose of his soul. Sounds sound like, good, sound like a good idea? Yes, we oh, can do oh, that. Oh, Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual mm-hmm. light shine upon him. May he rest in peace, and Amen. may his soul and the souls of all the faithful depart through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us his, his papacy, his mind, his thought, as he helps us to know the Blessed Mother more as she leads us to her son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, Kevin, you live online. You have a website. Maybe you have public social media. So if uh, people are really intrigued about Fatima or other works that you are doing, how can they learn more? Uh, you can go to my website, kevinsimmons.com. That's K-E-V-I-N-S-Y-M-O-N-D-S.com. That is the best way uh, to get a hold of you know the different things that I write about and to learn about me. Um, I do have a Facebook, but it's my personal account. I don't have a public thing, so um, so I, I, I just I usually direct people to, towards the website. There is a contact me page as well, um, and my book is on, on Fatima is on the third part of the Secret of Fatima, published in 2017. Presently working on the second edition. I'm hoping it'll be out maybe mid 2023 ish, depending upon how fast things get reviewed. <laughs> uh, it's written. I'm just it's just being edited right now, so. Um, I'm also the author of Pope Leo XIII and the Prayer to St. Michael. So did Leo really have a vision about the devil being ha- having been given to control of the church for 100 years? That's the book for you to read to find out. And then my other book is Refractions of Light, 201 a- uh, question, uh, Questions and Answers on Apparitions, Visions, and the Catholic Church. Uh, and, of course, various other writings, articles all over the Internet. Well, that's wonderful. I encourage people to go find your uh, resources, which are valuable, especially to the study of Our Lady of Fatima, to whom you are devoted and wish to spread devotion to. So thanks so much for your good work with Private Revelation and helping us understand these messages that Our Lady gave. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I hope that it was enriching for you, that it deepened your love for Mary And if you don't mind, would you please do a few things? First, follow me, Father Edward Looney, on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the handle at FR Edward Looney. Also, you can follow my YouTube page, and you'll be able to see the video content that I put out each week. And if you don't mind, could you rate and review this podcast? Go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate it. And if you're able, write a review because that will help others to find this podcast as well. I appreciate you tuning in week after week. I would appreciate your prayers. And please know that I remember you in mine as well. Until next time, may God bless you and Mary pray for you.